Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. Today is the 3rd of September. It's another glorious day. I can only hope, Michael, that you are as well as I am this day. I am glorious. I think you're glorious every day. I feel slightly sick now. Oh. <laughs> okay, fine, Gary. What is happening in the world? So, we've got more on green politicians saying things they shouldn't or should, depending on your views. We've got uh, Michal Martin seeming to now dedicate himself to defending Fine Gael and attacking Fianna Fáil, like some sort of political party dementia. And I have to actually say something good about the ICCL, possibly for the first time ever. Yeah, but only a little thing. And then you have to take it back. The ICCL came out there recently, the Irish Council for Civil Liberties, and they said they were talking about the end of the lockdown restrictions. And they said that they were uh, very pleased to hear that the restrictions would end, and they wanted confirmation that mandatory quarantine and discriminatory vaccine passes will also end on October the 22nd. And, you know, this is the ICCL finally after what feels like years upon years of silence and the odd statement saying, mm, we're not sure about that. I know, Gary, that's not fair. I mean, the ICCL has been at the forefront of campaigning to limit people's freedom of speech, to limit people's right to protest, limits people's rights, obviously, no, to have opinions that are the wrong opinions or bad opinions. They, they would never advocate limiting people's liberty of expression or protest for the right things or the correct things. But for bad things, they've been, they have been out to the forefront in advocating and helping government move along uh, legislation towards the restricting uh, bad thought and bad speech. So it's not that they've been silent. You have to be fair. That is, that is fair. But, you know, I thought they make a reasonable point. They point out that mandatory quarantine was discriminatory and that vaccine passes are themselves discriminatory. People responded to that with a great deal of anger in their hearts, Michael. Just their hearts. Just their hearts. Because they said the vaccine passes are necessary for public health, they're not discriminatory. Mm. There are some people, Michael, who struggle to hold two ideas at once. Magpies, basically. Right. And they couldn't seem to accept the idea that something can be both discriminatory and proportionate and reasonable in order to protect public health. This is, yes, very good. True, true, true. Which tends to be the argument in favour of vaccine passes. Because the thing here, Michael, if you have a piece of paper that says one person can, let's say, eat inside a restaurant and one can't, it functions as a sorting mechanism, almost in a way allowing you to discriminate between different qualities of people in order to do different things. And yet we know that to discriminate is bad. Not just bad, it is axiomatically bad, it is a priori bad, it is always and everywhere bad. To discriminate cannot be good, Gary. But what, Michael, if I were to tell you discrimination is often good, and even when it's not good, is an innate part of being human. I would say that you're obviously one of those crazy, far-right, extreme-right, alt-right-adjacent alt types that occupies what I think is called the dark web. In fact, you're probably broadcasting this podcast on the dark web, which is why nobody can find it, and we don't have hundreds of thousands of listeners. I thought that was because the uh, actually surprising amount of listeners we have are shamed by listening to the show, Michael, and would never accept to their friends <laughs> and colleagues. <laughs> it's a bit like, you know those, you, you, you'd see in, in movies about the Second World War, 
people in France and in Germany and Holland who keep the, the radio hidden in the cupboard and listen to it, listen to the BBC late at night with their ears pressed up against because they know that they cannot allow anybody, in the, any of the neighbours, anybody to hear them listening to the BBC because if they are, they'll be taken out and shot. People listen to the po this podcast in much the same way. Yeah, I say shame, but perhaps I should have said a very realistic sense of self-preservation. Maybe a little bit of shame. Maybe too. a little bit of shame. Just the right amount of shame to give it that extra little spice. Nothing wrong with a bit of shame. Guilty pleasures do have their upsides. Yeah, they wouldn't be pleasures if they weren't a little bit guilty. There wouldn't be at least it wouldn't be so much pleasures. Adds to it. It's a bit like salt and pepper, you know? People just cannot get their head around the idea that something can be discriminatory and yet a good thing, and they go off in the ICCL. Basically on that point, unwilling to accept that something can be discriminatory and good, or at least proportionate. That That's clearly the case, that things can be discriminatory and proportionate or good. They may not be in this case, but that's clearly the case. Things can have, you know, good and bad sides to them. And there might be, at some point, a balancing, perhaps, of rights and responsibilities in order to determine what the government should do. It's not an accident, Gary, that the word for a very long time to say he was a very discriminating man was that that was a compliment he showed great discrimination a person of great taste and good judgment because they were careful to distinguish between one thing and another thing and maybe that's what we're talking about here is fundamental failure in discrimination that these people don't just understand the difference between one thing and another thing that there is prejudicial in the, again, in the bad sense, prejudicial discrimination, and then just, just discrimination, which is a form of discernment. And discernment, as we know, is a very good thing. So anyway, the ICCL comes out and does that. And I must say, yeah, the ICCL finally did something on it, and that is a good thing. And it took them about 24 hours to apologise. Yeah, it was kind of sad, wasn't it? Maybe 18. Yeah. It was all kind of sad and kind of, oh, really, did you, ha did you have to? Do you have... Or either underneath your hand there or in your memory the, the language of the apology because I, I remember thinking really it's just like one of those things again something like we said something yesterday we, and we now realise it was it really upset people and I thought yeah God well they, they said that they want to apologise for the tone of the tweet the tone of the tweet it's a mealy mouth isn't it but then near the end of the apology they did reiterate that they believe the domestic use of vaccine certs to permit entry to venues, venues is not justified for a range of human rights and equality reasons. I tell you, whatever about the human rights and equality reasons, the what looks like it's more likely than not, advent of the booster shot has kind of put a bit of a hole in the whole vaccine passport thing anyway. Yeah, I think we're right on that one. It, it becomes a lot harder to make that argument when suddenly it's it's not get two and you're done. It's a rolling process of engagement with vaccinations. And it's just, even practically, that's awkward. Yes. That's, how do you distinguish it? Also, well, this point is getting into because but it's, you just go down rabbit holes. But particularly, it would be the case that, as possibly may be the case, that certain people with certain kinds of vaccinations have been, have maintained high levels of protection against infection and others have seen precipitous drops off and may, but maybe they haven't. We don't know. We can say with a degree of confidence on the basis of the information that we're being given because we are not, some of you may not know this, we're not epidemiologists, virologists or immunologists. 
that there still is very strong protection against hospitalization and serious disease, but that there may be a drop off. But AstraZeneca may, for example, provide more consistent long term protection. So do you distinguish there? Do you, would you discriminate between someone who is double Pfizer and, or, and someone with AstraZeneca? There was a report out over the weekend from a reputable source which said that people who had Moderna had double the number of antibodies that people who had Pfizer. So it all gets a little bit fuzzy, and I don't think you can kind of make those distinctions. So basically, you either say everybody has to be vac- has to be passported, or well, the passport is now not is now effectively useless, and we just go we just go on as before. Particularly now, when you're looking at a situation where so many, so much of the population has actually been vaccinated. I did when uh, when I was looking through the ICCL's Twitter for this because all of this is on twitter because that's where everyone lives these days michael i don't usually go through the iccl's media statements and their public facing pronouncements i just there's never anything useful there so why bother but uh one thing i did see is the the iccl are very big on uh what they call the share the recipe idea which is the removal of ip rights on vaccines so that anyone who wants to can produce them and they say michael if we did this, we wouldn't have to choose between booster shots here and vaccinating elsewhere. Now, not to you know, pop the little ideal- idealism bubble here. The work I've seen on this suggests that removing property rights on the vaccines would not actually do that. Because it turns out it's really difficult to make some of these vaccines. The only way that it would make an effective difference is if by removing the intellectual property rights from the vaccines... This, in some way, magically produced more production facilities for vaccines in the planet, on the globe. Because when people have looked at this, right now, the production that, pretty well all the production that's available to do this, that could be using to produce vaccines is doing that. And it's not as if making vaccines is the same as making vegetable soup, Gary. It's not something you can do in your back kitchen. And the time involved, also, it's. It, I think this is the real thing. It's not maybe the, the individual difficulty, but there are so many moving parts to a vaccine. I don't know, did you see that report? That, it, it, not a report, but a description of the process. I think we talked about it many, many months ago. The number of different ingredients and that go into vaccines, one of which made here, one that, and all the different countries involved in the making of a vaccine, all the different plants involved in the making of the vaccine and then this packaging the the thing and then storing it is a it is a complicated and complex process involving lots of different people and the idea that you could suddenly just loosen the thing up by throwing out ip rights other than the fact that yeah well it may just be the case gary that the profit motive is actually something useful well looking at how the um the whole vaccine thing went for AstraZeneca and their whole weird, you know, we're doing this for humanity. I think we can say we should never do that again, ever. Anyone. I can, I can tell you AstraZeneca won't do it again. Well, you know, sometimes you find great purpose in your life if you fuck up so badly that others can find warning by looking at your wreckage. I don't accept that AstraZeneca fucked up that badly. I think that they have had some bad press I think effective. They have done a pretty decent job. You'll never get a job at the European Commission with that attitude. Oh, no, I won't. That's true, actually. 
it is one of the secret dark dreams of my life that I will actually get a job with the European Commission, probably by accident or maybe from winning a prize at a GAA lotto or something. But yeah, maybe you're right. I should shut up about that. I have heard other people point out that actually one of the problems around the world has been caused not so much by AstraZeneca, but by unscientific uh, attitudes of governments and administrations towards AstraZeneca, which has caused what we have called here before vaccine hesitancy amongst population, which has led to lower levels of vaccination and slower rates of vaccination that would otherwise have been the case. And that has been a very bad consequence for not just the individuals involved, but the whole world, because more people vaccinated more quickly is a very good thing. And I don't think that was AstraZeneca's fault. The, uh, like the attitude of European governments saying, OK, we're not going to license it here, even though the European, the European Drug uh, Administration had said this is a reasonable and safe. And the risk profile says that it, it is correct to use it, even though there are uh, very, very small risks associated. And that has spread throughout the world. We've seen it's it's happening. We see reports of it in in Australia, where people have been postponing vaccination on the basis they don't want to take AstraZeneca; they only want to use Pfizer. We've heard it in Africa. Now, I'm told. Well, I was told sharply by somebody recently that we should distinguish when we talk about Australia that it's Victoria and I think and New South Wales, really, which are the two most populous states. I think in. But that large other parts of Australia, and Australia is very large indeed, are effectively COVID-free and are not under massive lockdown, as opposed to the two parts of this, which are not just under lockdown, but under military government. So we, we need to distinguish there. If you're up in the Northern Territories, you're free as a bird. You can't leave the country very easily, maybe. Is that a known, is that a known limitation on the freedom of birds? Inability to cross a national border? It is not a known one. So you don't see birds, like, flying over the border and just slamming into some sort of wall? Freeze birds without passports, then. Is that a known limitation on the freedom of birds? Passports? I'm sure birds have passports. I don't think you thought this metaphor true at all. Cows have passports? No, 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 you're, you're just embarrassing yourself now. On the last episode, we were talking about... Um, Green TD, chap called Ledden, got in trouble because he called a woman unhinged and he was in a WhatsApp group where people made some other disparaging and what I'm told were slurs against women. More specifically against a particular woman or two women. But anyway, that became a big news story. The Green Party commented on it. The leadership got involved. It was all, you know, it was all a, a thing. What I thought was quite interesting is we've got another story about a uh, Green councillor in the news now. And... We haven't heard anything from the Green Party, and what actually happened was that uh, there's a Green Party councillor, a guy called Oshin O'Connor. Now, Oshin O'Connor put out a tweet, and he sent it to a uh, woman called Leah Doherty, who is a activist who was convicted of two counts of assault because she threw a milkshake at people she politically disagreed with, arguably people most people politically disagree with. And it went to court, she was convicted of the two counts of assault, and she was fined 300 euro. And our dear friend, the councillor, sent her a public message offering to help pay for the 300 euro fine and saying that, well, looking at it, 300 euro to milkshake these racist vermin is a bit of a bargain. 
I don't know, Gary, but I feel that that kind of language is very othering. I feel councillors probably shouldn't promote violence against members of the public based on their political views. Yeah, they're probably very bad people. So on the other hand, violence, you know, I mean, it's not like they said something nasty. I mean, they didn't use hurtful, triggering language. They only just used sort of physical violence, which isn't, you know. Oh, yeah, because words are violence and, and can cause harm. But physical actions are, are protest, yeah. Yeah, this is protest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. remember that we, we learned that in the BLM stuff that was going on. We also learned, which was something that I was fascinated by. Science is just fascinating, isn't it, Gary? That if you protest in Dublin for BLM, that you become resistant to COVID. But if you protest, say, against the government or against lockdown restrictions, you become a super spreader event. It's really interesting the way pathology works in these things. I find it fascinating. I think on the show we, we have discussed the science behind that at extensive length. Yeah, yeah, it's really good. So anyway, he's in the news now because of a story that popped up. And the basic gist of the story is that people complained about these tweets because they said that they were outside the standards that should be acceptable in public office. And some people said that they were a pretty clear promotion of illegal activity. An incitement to violence, even. Well, I mean, if you're saying that a €300 Euro fine for uh, assaulting these racist vermin... Yes. That does sort of indicate that, you know, it's a bargain. Pick it up while it stocks last. <laughs> Fill your boots. These people, the council... This chap is in Dunleary Ratdown Council... The council replied to all these people saying that they had met with him, they had engaged with him, he had removed the tweets, and they had had a discussion about the standards which councillors are required to hold themselves to. What did people do before they engaged with people? Synergized? Or did that come after engagement? I think synergized before. I don't think synergized didn't last very long. Have you ever been synergized, Michael? Oh, I have. I have. A while, but still, I can remember it. Anyway, you're saying Dunleary County Council met and synergised and engaged with this man. And told various members of the public that this has been dealt with and he'd gotten rid of it. They didn't say they had forced him to get rid of it. No, no. They just, they met him and then afterwards he got rid of it. And we were sent some of these emails in Gripped saying that this has happened and, you know, just a sort of, do you think this is a story? Um, because people will often do that. And if you have anything like that, please do send it in to us. And I looked into it. And the first thing you do, Michael, in something like this, is you check to see if the tweet is actually still there. And were it? It was. <laughs> so we got back to the guy who sent us the information and said, yeah, you, you sent us all this, but the tweet is still there. Like, it's clearly there. It, it can be seen. And he didn't get back to us now. He may get back to us later. It was only a day or so ago. But then the next day, I see the story in The Independent. Green councillor deletes milkshake these racist vermin tweet. And I'm looking at it, and then I'm looking, because I, I don't ever close tabs, so I'm just looking at the tweet, then the independent saying it's being deleted, then the tweet again, and trying to, uh, trying to work out how these two things fit into one world, Michael. So the independent put up a story about something that just on the basic facts of it isn't right. It's just not what happened. Yes. But also didn't bother to check if it was true. Because if they had have checked, they would have immediately seen it was false. So they didn't do the most basic of fact-checking. 
like seconds of your life, Michael. Just didn't bother. I, I, I don't. Uh, I'm not saying this like sarcastic. I mean, we know that the New York Times and the Herald Tribune and all that they do fact check, and there may be others. But I, do Irish newspapers do fact checking? I mean, in general, if you're going to say that something happened, regardless of what that thing is, you would try and figure out had that thing actually happened. Like you'd give it a guess. Well, if someone says who is intimately associated with the thing, this has happened. And you're not that bothered. You don't really care that much about the story. I can see people just writing the story. However, in this particular case, if they had logged on to Twitter and done their search, which would take it, as you say, many, many seconds, they would have discovered, lo and behold, the tweet was still there. So you did you talk to the Independent? Oh, I, I, I informed the Independent and Gripped put up a story, basically. Because we there was no story when the tweet was still there. Yes. Because nothing had been deleted. If the council had forced him to delete something, that's a story. Yes. But there's nothing there. But the Independent, by publishing, meant we could now publish something saying, tweet not to leash it, which is a very <laughs> minor story, but is very funny to do. Yeah, yeah. So, weird enough, and they were talking to the councillor as well, who was telling them about why he had deleted it. I was just like, did no one think to actually check this? So, I, I, I got in touch with the Independent. And I know they could see it because you can see when people have seen your messages. Yes. And I reached out to particular people so I know that they had seen it. And then I was just sitting there and it was, you know, two hours later. I was just looking at the story and it was still up. But the Independent definitely knew it wasn't factually correct. Mm -hmm. Am I right in saying that right now we don't know if it has been deleted or not because the, the account has gone private? The councillor had retweeted the Independent story and explained himself and... You know, didn't seem terribly happy to be dealing with it, but I've been dealing with it. And then within an hour or two of me publishing my story, it's like, actually, he didn't delete it at all. Uh, he just locked his account, and now I can't see what's going on with it. Now, if I really cared, I'd find someone who followed him, and I'd find out that way, but I don't. Though. I'm just curious, to to expository. The man has... I'm, I'm right to say that he had told the council, or agreed with the council, that he would delete the tweet, that he... He had communicated with the Independent and to the extent, to some extent, gave the strong impression that he had in fact deleted the tweet. Two hours afterwards, hadn't yet deleted the tweet, even though this was published right. And then went private. Now, the, for a councillor to put his account private is a kind of a, a defeat, shall we say, because politicians use their tweeting, their Twitter accounts as a way to, to communicate with their voters and their uh, their constituency. So it's, it's a, not a usual thing to do to, Go private. The only reason I can think of off the one top of your head and it would seem like the obvious thing is that he's gone private because he doesn't want people seeing the tweet. Why wouldn't he just delete the bloody tweet? I mean, what's the is it, it, this is an odd hill to die on, Gary? Well, I mean, maybe he just forgot to delete the tweet and he has subsequently deleted it. Maybe, however, he was slightly misleading and decided that he didn't want to do that because that would be a victory for certain people. I don't know. It just strikes me as a, it, it's a very a mulish position, an unusually mulish for a politician these days. Almost admirable in a way. I mean, I don't admire the tweet, but the the resolute attitude as if well, I will what I have written, I have written in the manner of Pontius Pilate is, I don't know, kind of admirable in, a, in an age in which everybody rushes to apologise, as we saw with the ICCL earlier in the discussion. The refusal to take the tweet down, I kind of like that. No, 
I mean, the only thing that I, I, I can see the appeal there, Michael. The only thing I think that could make him come out more positively is if someone milkshaked him and he took it. Well, I, you know, this is the standard I've set. Of course, he's probably not racist vermin. Well, that's a matter of perspective. Everything is. I mean, he may think he's not racist vermin or racist or vermin in isolation. But, you know, a sufficiently motivated person with a sufficient supply of milkshakes could probably make a compelling argument in some sense. Actually, you don't have to be that good to make the argument. Okay, number one, he's a human being, right? And I think most people who are properly green, properly environmentally engaged, regard human beings and the the way they interact with the planet as being essentially vermin. They are an excessively populous, parasitic species, which is going around fucking up everything for everybody else. I mean, human beings are the principal form of vermin on planet Earth. Secondly, he's a white man. I mean, he must be racist. Well, I think that's the way you'd go, because then you might be able to convince him as well, because he seems to be in that progressive space. Right. I mean, is he going to deny the innate racism of uh, these white supremacist hierarchies? I think not. Well, I don't think any reasonable person could. On the, um, on that, it is quite interesting, I think, that a green TD, a green politician, saying being in the area of someone saying unpleasant things about a particular woman is a national front page news story. Yes. But another green politician offering to pay someone's fine for assaulting someone and implying that that is, well, directly saying that that is a a bit of a bargain to only be charged that much to milkshake and then calling a, a political opponent's vermin is not really an issue. Are you saying there's a double standard operation here? It's just, there are a lot of people in, there are a lot of people in politics on the left, let's just say in general, who are deeply concerned about, you know, extremism, Michael, and populism, and the undermining of democratic norms, who then look at stuff like that and say, well, that's, yeah, that's not, that's fine. The people that she milkshaked deserve to be milkshaked, and that's a fine standard to set here. Yeah, I can see your concern because, well, I think it's not just your concern, it's a it's a it's a concern I think most politicians have. If there is anything that politicians hate more than hypocrisy, it's double standards. And it's it's like the the hate speech bills. You have the same thing. People concerned, you know, extremists. They're undermining democracy. And then the same people will turn around and, in relation to hate speech bills, will say, "Well, we believe it's perfectly legitimate to imprison someone for stating their political views." Yeah, the great. The fun thing about that is, in those jurisdictions which have in- introduced hate speech legislation or uh, um, similar kinds of legislation, the the really fun bit is when uh, they turn around and the wrong people get arrested. I mean, that's always the highlight. That was was it? I, I we talked about it before. I, I think it was in South Carolina they'd introduced hate codes, and the first five people to be arrested were African Americans who had said used racist epithets about police officers who were arresting them. And of course, it was all caught, caught on body cam. And they were charged with uh, hate speech and hate speech crimes and convicted. And everyone was like, no, no, we didn't mean that. That's not the, no, you got it wrong. This is not supposed to be for them. And then people saying, no, but you see, that's not the way the law works. At least that's not the way we work it. It covers all the people. And they're going, oh, we didn't know that. Why didn't you tell us that? I never thought tigers would eat my face. 
says person voting for the Tigers eating people's faces party. So I just thought that was an interesting one, particularly on the Indo, knowing it was false and just leaving it up, just not bothering. I think, I don't know the, the hearts and minds of the Indo, Michael, but they may have just went, well, this is a really minor story. We're not going to do anything about it because we're the independent. Unfortunately, Michael, I've never been one of those people who assumes if someone is incompetent at small things, they're going to be competent at big things. I sure like, like the Lord Jesus, who said, he who I can trust with small things, I shall trust with great. And if a newspaper is willing to keep a story they know to be factually incorrect up for hours, and the story is still there, and maybe they can see the guy's tweets and it's, it is gone. But they kept it up there when they knew, they didn't suspect, they knew it was absolutely false because I sent them an active link to the tweet. And if that's their standard of truth, what's it like in other stories? Where exactly is the line for the Indo where something is so important, it being factually correct that they have published information, is now relevant to them? I, yeah, I know. It is actually quite, it's a, it's a, it's a, it is a real problem. Have you ever had that experience where you're reading a book, a, a work of nonfiction, and it's well-reviewed and it's serious historian or a serious writer or whatever, and he, just by happenstance, he happens to talk about something in it that you happen to know something about, and in the space of three paragraphs makes one, maybe two, pretty serious errors of fact. This has happened to me a couple of times in reading history, and, and it destroys the book for me. Because after that, I think, well, what can I... What can I believe about this? When he talks about something I know about, I know he gets it wrong. And there, this is, the weird thing is that we actually have as much faith in anything as we do. There is, there's, a, there's a phrase in this there's a, 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 from psychology which describes this capacity we have to believe in things. Because when we, we, we ha it happens all the time in newspapers. You read something in a newspaper which, you, which is a story about something which you happen to know something about. And in the story, there are three factual errors, gross factual errors, which you know. And you think, well, that's wrong. That's a really bad story. You then continue to read the, the rest of the newspaper, which is stories which you know nothing about. And yet you somehow believe those stories. But there, when you, if you start to continually, when you get something like this, you think, well, this is the level of accuracy you have. Eventually, it does start to corrode the trust you have in the organ. We actually probably have far too much trust in these things in one way. But then again, you can't live your life as a sceptic. At some level, when we deal with human beings in any way, whether it's in, in business relationships or commercial relationships, sentimental relationships, or in newspapers or institutions, you have to kind of commit to a certain level of trust. I would just wish that they would make more effort to reassure us that that trust is well-placed. It's partially the standards you have internally as to fact-checking and things like that. But the second step, which is a step where a lot of people fall down, I think where the independent has fallen down now, has been willing to accept when you have been wrong. Like, I'm sure on the podcast we have said things that are incorrect. Yeah, I know you have. Simply because we've talked about so many subjects, and I, unlike you, Michael, am not infallible. No, you say that, you're not infallible. Like, like, you think infallibility is just something easy? Like something you just carry around like a feather on your shoulder? It's not easy, Gary. It's a responsibility. But yes, obviously, there have been times, clearly times, obviously, where we've been wrong, grossly wrong. And I would like to say that on a couple of occasions, I have come on and said, by the way, I was wrong. And I, you know, I, there's a fear of admitting you're wrong, which I think is misplaced. Politicians are absolutely terrified 
they will do anything rather than say, oh, yeah, I was wrong about that. Now, while I wouldn't say that it's something you'd want to do every other week, I think the occasional confession that for good reasons and understandable reasons, you made a mistake, an error, and you could, you'd say, you admit it to that, particularly in the face of strong evidence that you had done so, I think people would respect that. At the very least, I don't think they would punish you. I think the general research on this suggests that people will respect you being able to admit you've made a mistake as long as two criteria are met, and they're quite closely interlinked. The first one is that they like you to begin with, and the second is that they think you know what you're talking about. So an expert who makes a mistake and admits it is just in a very different place than some random gobshite. <laughs> it's always a problem being a random gobshite. This is true. So, yeah, that's happening, and now we have uh, not just a, not another great moment for the independence editorial standards. Yeah. But they make more money than us, Michael, and in the end, that's what matters. They make more money, and the government actually care what they think. Yes. <laughs> Those are two factors which we have to recognise and take into consideration. The government cares remarkably little what we think. Which is probably good, considering some of the cutting things we've said about members of the government. Well, yes, indeed. It's almost unkindnesses at times. Almost unkindness. If we went to the same garden parties, it would get very awkward very quickly. Yet we remain curiously uninvited. You know, you're sitting there. You've got a variety of canapes beneath <laughs> you. You look across the table. You see a politician staring at you. <laughs> and you just have to think to yourself, did that man hear me call him a grasping, hollow shell? <laughs> well, you know, he would understand that it was all meant good fun. It wasn't. Well, it was an accurate summary of him. Well, why would you want to talk to him then? What would you care? Why would you care? Because I'm polite. It's the same reason I told the Independent that their story was wrong. Not because it was the ethical or right thing to do. Because it was polite. You feel you, this is a piece of information that this particular politician needs to know. Self-awareness is a gift. A gift that you want to give these people. Okay, you're probably a saint, Kerry. I'm just, I'm a giver, Michael. Yeah, that's what people say about You know, weirdly enough, in all of the things I've heard said about me, that didn't come up too often. Well, you know, they don't like to say it when you're around, because you know, there's always the worry that it might sound like gross flattery. That just worries me, considering some of the things people have been willing to say to my face. So, on um, politicians we've said terribly unkind things about. Michal Martin. Michal Martin. We have said some unkind things about Michal Martin. And you know what? Nothing. Nothing that he has not fully merited and yet goes on the next day, or the next week or the next month to do something that makes us look back and think, you know what? We were soft. We were excessively kind. I have come to a conclusion, actually, Gary, and I'm willing to. I'm going to break it here. This is an exclusive. I have worked out actually the mystery of Michal Martin. Did you ever read any of those spy novels written in the fifth, sixties, and seventies, like in the heart of the Cold War? Are you going to suggest that Michal Martin is a Manchurian candidate? I am precisely going to suggest that he is a sleeper. He is a sleeper that has been was planted by some deep psycho psycho. Uh, Psychops? Psychops group in Finnegale back in the whenevers, the 70s. He was groomed and placed and left like a, is it a, a midwick cuckoo? Something cuckoo? In the nest of Fianna Fáil. Now there are probably dozens and dozens of them because you can't just throw one in and assume that he will get all the way up. So put in dozens of them and eventually and on the basis that most of them will get nowhere. Michael was put into the nest and then when the time was right they clicked the they clicked the button, they flicked the switch, 
They turned him on. And Michal Martin is actually a Fine Gael sleeper put into Fianna Fáil with the, the, the express intention of destroying it. And I think that would explain, if you look at it from that perspective, everything becomes explicable. All the stuff that makes you think, what's he at? What's the, I'm puzzled, why is he doing this? Why is he listening to them? Why is he pursuing that policy? What's he at? When you look at him and you think, ah, he's actually a Fine Gael running Fianna Fáil. Everything makes sense. Took him a while to get there, though. Well, these things take time, Gary. You know, I mean, for all we know, Brian. No, I was going to say Brian Cowan. No, Brian Cowan was not a. There's no way you could make mistake Brian Cowan for anything except a Fianna Fáiler, or indeed Bertie. But also, he radiated most of what he radiated a hatred of blue shirts. It was a proper old-fashioned backwards man, atavistic hatred of the blue shirts. And he was a very good performer. He's a very well. He's a very bright man. Um, but he had this. He had that weakness. Phil Hogan was actually quite was very good at it. Phil used to sort of who was not the world's greatest debater on TV, and particularly Cowan, who can be savage. Hogan and Noonan used to sort of poke him and just sneer, 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 and and Cowan lose the rag and waddles because he could see them. He just he'd, he'd lose. He get the blood lust up. The blood would be up the berserker, and he see the bloody blue shirts. Mial, Mial, of course, comes from the home of the blue shirts back down in Cork. You know the man, the home, home of them. And uh, so, why else, Gary, would you have a scenario where in the, I know you you are you are bored by Marion Gate. I'm not bored. I am amused by it. Leaving Marion Gate aside, leaving Marion Gate aside, and I just want to share with the listeners because uh, I I feel it should. Those who have seen Leo's tweets, or not tweets, messages that he exchanged with Catherine Sapone that have, he has now published um, online because he didn't delete his. Because his phone is a really good phone and he can keep it. And he's never been hacked. So he had his, his, his messages and one, the message was sent, uh, dear Leo, from the piglet. I have to confess, Gary, when I saw that for a number of days until it was explained to me otherwise, or I saw a reference which explained it otherwise, I thought the piglet was a soubriquet used about and by Sapone about herself in her intimate circle, you know, like Twinkle or something. And I was rather disappointed to discover that it was the name of a wine bar. If that was the case, and it was a, a nickname for Sapone, I like that it was the piglet yeah. instead of piglet. Exactly, yeah. But on, on Marion... This, this, I refuse to call it Marion Gate. That is wrong. On this, I think this is a monumentously stupid story that shouldn't have happened because Fine Gael could have just rigged something in the department to give it the look of an official appointment. Simple, easy, effective. They didn't do that. Then every single step on the way of it, they've managed to turn what a story which I don't think anyone in the public cares about into just this morass of stupid shit. Every stage, someone has done something moronic. And it's it's the sort of scandal I hate, where nothing important politically has happened, and it will do more damage to certain people than actual important stories. The important story here, I, I think, continues to be the fact that a cabinet minister, by leaking from the cabinet and informing people what other cabinet ministers were doing, breached the constitution pretty clearly. Yes. The law was broken. It seems absolutely clear that the law was broken. And we have not heard one whisper about an investigation into the breach in cabinet confidentiality, which is something which the courts have held to be absolute and sacrosanct. We haven't heard anything about an investigation into the fact 
that freedom of information applications were told that there were no communications with Leo and, uh, on the subject. And then we discovered that there, in fact, were there were communications. We have no investigations in the, in, into the manner in which the, min, the Minister for Foreign Affairs manages his government-held messages, his data. He just deletes them. And it seems to me that, that is not a satisfactory way of managing go uh, government business, that you just delete the willy-nilly. Because he got some way hacked, even though the Taoiseach was unaware of this fact. Yeah, and then it turns out that the the hack involved someone pretending to be Simon Coveney and talking to other European high-ranking politicians, their foreign ministers. That seems like something the Taoiseach should have known was happening. You would have thought so. Unless what actually happened was Simon got blathered, pissed, and just sent messages randomly out to people, and then you know that, then you know that feeling the next morning. Oh God, who did I text? Who? What did I post on Facebook? How many times have you seen that, Gary? Oh, I got hacked last night, folks, on my Facebook account. So please, any messages you may have received, just ignore them. Yeah, you're hacked by a large bottle of vodka. Yeah. So Coveney says his phone was hacked. Twenty twenty. Other foreign ministers were contacted using his phone's identity. So if we think about that for a second, Cishok didn't know that that happened, that there had been outreach to other governments falsely using the identity of his foreign minister, and no one fucking bothered to tell him. I mentioned it. wasn't wasn't an issue. So I don't I, I don't know if it's better if that happened or didn't happen. Because if it did happen, and no one bothered to tell Michal Martin, like the man is an appendage. And that, of course, is... Precisely what he appears at this stage to be. He is dependent. And, okay, leaving aside, I mean, I take absolutely your point that as a story, this is just such a non thing. They could, there was, it was the easiest thing in the world for Coveney to set up a, a, a civil service search and interview situation which would have given Zapone the job. It could have, it was the thing and nothing. The way they managed, the way he did, he didn't tell people when he could have told people. He could have said it to Michal Martin. Michal Martin wasn't going to refuse him. He was going to say, "Why the, the, the just the, the inefficiency, the stupidity, the whole thing is going on," and then the the explanations and the and, oh and the the hacking and the deleted tweets and as somebody said to me, he said, "You feel like saying to Simon, oh, for Christ's sake, Simon, stop drilling, would you please? You're going to reach the Earth's core anytime soon, and it's not going to work out." So just stop. Just stop it. Any small degree of truth. But leaving all of that aside, what, the reason I was I just think is curious at the moment is because it is one of those weird things where, as you say, a very small, silly kind of a thing may end up having ridiculous disproportionate consequences. For example, it may go nowhere. But yesterday, two separate Fine Gael frontbenchers, when asked about Simon Coveney, responded, well, that's for Minister Coveney to answer. Now, that, Gary, is not the language of we're behind you, Simon, right till the bitter end. We will protect you and save you no matter what happens. That's the language of I'm getting fed up with talking about Simon Coveney. Simon, here's the pistol. There's the room. Do the fucking decent thing, would you? So there's shit happening over there. There's people murmuring about Leo as well. But ugh, that's, all, that's just projection nonsense. Nothing is happening to Leo. Leo is going nowhere. Yesterday, Fianna Fáil launched its housing initiative. Uh, they're talking about building, what is it, 300,000 houses 
90,000 social and affordable housing. There's the new mortgage scheme for people, for so it's somebody, a single person on 65,000 in Dublin, Greater Dublin, Cork, Galway can apply for a mortgage, special mortgage help. Oh, it's, it's a huge policy announcement. It's the single big, well, after COVID, the single biggest structural problem in the economy, which is the problem of housing and homelessness. This is probably the biggest policy ish thing Fianna Fáil have done for a very long time. And what did Michael Martin end up and what to do and, and, and in a sense distract from the policy announcement? It, it becomes about Barry Cowan. Now, I've been looking for the actual words. I can't find them. But I can find are loads and loads of my Fianna Fáilers incandescent with pissed offness that this was used as an occasion to defend the leader of Fine Gael and the deputy leader of Fine Gael, the Tarnishta and the Minister for Foreign Affairs, and to have a dig at a fellow Fianna Fáiler. And I'm just curious... Twitter means very little in the real world, Gary. We all know that, the kinds of people that are on Twitter. But when I look at the individuals that were losing their lives about, they are people who are substantial activists, people who are well-connected. And I, I got on the phone and I called a few people. And particularly in Dublin, absolutely ripping about it. They are so pissed off that he should have taken this opportunity, first of all, to defend Finnegalers, rather than just let them go on and you know spin on the spinning on the on the pinwheel, and if they, if the press wants to crucify them, what harm? Surely Finnegal still is the principal, shall we say, competition for vote to Finnegal, and if they become disenchanted, there is a chance that some of them might end up going to Finnegal. But also the fact that he had to take, he couldn't resist getting a dig in at one of his own. Yeah, and he was. He was asked, uh, would he like to apologise for the people, for the Finnefall ministers he had sacked, considering what he was now allowing from Fine Gael? And Philip Ryan of The Independent asked him that question, and then reported that Thishuk showed up to the launch of the Housing for All policy with the speech he made about sacking Barry Cowan. With the speech in his pocket. Which is to say, Martin knew that was coming up. And decided to prepare with the full speech in case it did. This the speech he gave. Uh, the, I mean, and Barry Cowan, by the way, has been, I think, playing a small blinder recently, getting the tone exactly right, but getting getting knives nicely located into between between scapulas. But he went, Gary. He went with the bloody speech in his pocket. I mean, Christ Almighty! To me, this is a test. Now we hear obviously all the the usual noises that one would expect from Mark McSharry, God bless him. We, there's all sorts of uproar going around the country amongst the activists, and there seem to be genuinely pissed off about it. If this doesn't result in some kind of action, some kind of, of an attempt to organise a move against Martin, then I think we can pull the sheet over the, the corpse and pronounce him dead. I think this is it. I'm not saying that necessarily they might succeed in taking Martin out, that, but that there is some evidence of a willingness within some people left in the party to act, I think is necessary to prove that this is a political party with a future. If there is no one in the party left that has the willingness to act, well then, it's moribund. It's, 
It's just been maintained on a respirator and it is effectively brain dead. That's just a question. Will the machine be turned off at the next election or the election after? But as a political force, it's gone. Because if you do not have the will to act, you are nothing in politics. This is a point we made before. For about, I think, the last year, that after a while, this stops being Michal Martin's fault. Absolutely. Because you're letting him stay there. And you continue to let him stay there. And he continues to do things like this. And you continue to bicker amongst yourselves. And no one wants to be the person who actually takes him out. Even though at multiple points, there were the numbers to do so. And there eventually comes a point where it's more damaging to you to leave him there than it is to take him out and lose the leadership. It becomes more than tedious to hear people complaining about Michal Martin behaving like Michal Martin. Everybody knows at this stage pretty well what the psychology of the man is. You can predict with a degree of confidence within a certain scope how he's going to behave in a certain situation. And when he behaves pretty well like he always does, and then people come out and complain about that. You say, no, I'm sorry. This is Michal Martin. Michal is being completely con- honest to himself, true to his own position. He is being consistent. He's being coherent. You're the one that's not. If you have, if you find this so terribly objectionable, then do something about it. But do not complain when the man behaves like himself. And he's been doing this for 10 years now. I mean, it's, none of this is news. I don't, I, you kind of have to feel that someone needs to sit down with these people with a diagram that just says the failure to choose is an in, a, in of itself is a choice. Or, you know, perhaps something like you are responsible for your own actions. Maybe act. I think you could explain that to the cows come home. I don't think it would make any difference. I think ultimately this is something like, this is, oh God, I don't want to say Hegel, but it's, the capacity to act is based on the willingness, the capa- the possession of will, I suppose. A will to act, a will to power. And I don't think they have it. And that's what they always had. Fianna Fáil always had a will to power. And an utter confident belief that it was their natural and normal place. This was the default position of Ireland. No, they've reached a point where Martin is basically pathetic and pitiful. I mean, he's a doormat. For Finnegan, they're not even bothering to tell him when things that impact on other governments uh, are turning up, like this hacking of their phones. They just don't bother because why would you? Because there's no point. Because he's a non-entity. But you leave him there long enough, it's not just Martin that's pathetic. It's everyone else involved who didn't take him out. Anyway, we shall. We can. I'll take. Can we? We just we'll finish up on this. I just wanted to make one quick observation about the uh, conversation, the text conversation, if we can call it that, between uh, Leo and Catherine Zappel. Gary, you noticed, I'm sure, that there was that very, that little interchange where he asked, where was it going to be? It's going to be on the the, the terrace in the uh, the Merion. It's very nice, actually. I've had tea there. It's actually a very nice space. And we're happy that's legal. It's sort of up to 200 outdoors, question mark, Leo said. And, and she responds, yes, I spoke to the manager and it, it's compliant. So we actually have confirmation, Gary, that that did happen. What they said happened, happened. The Tongish of the country, who had, who leader of Fine Gael, responsible 
in large part for the imposition of the rules and the regulations that govern our activity during the pandemic, was reliant on the fact that they'd rung up the manager of the Merion and, who, and he had told them, yes, the party is compliant. I just think that that's, if you wanted one single incident or fact about this government, this administration, to me, that is it. The government, the people who make the laws just to be sure they weren't breaking the law ran up, rang up the manager of the Merion Hotel and he said, yeah, it's okay. It's compliant. There you go. You see, there's no need ever to, as they have done recently in other issues, to ring up the Attorney General, for example, or anything like that at all. Ring up the manager of the Merion. And I suggest, Gary, in future, rather than ring up the Independent or the Department of Health or the Department of the President, whatever it is, when you want to know something, you ring the manager of the Merion. To really focus on the ridiculousness of that, the Tarnished has nearly unlimited access to the resources of the state and the civil service, particularly knowing that there is a revolving Taoiseach and the Tarnished is shortly to become the Taoiseach, barring anything horrible happening. Civil servants would be very happy to answer questions like, is it legal for me to have this party or to attend this party? You probably don't need to rely on the manager of a hotel. No, no matter how expert and bright and informed that manager might be, I don't want to cast dispersions. But no, you'd imagine that if you had access to all of the legal expertise available to you in the permanent government of the civil service and the cabinet, that you might be in a position to ask somebody there who be give, who, who could give you reassurance or otherwise. We won't go into the political optics of having a party at the Merion because these people seem to be politically tone deaf anyway and there's no point in talking about that anymore. But I just, I, I think that's, you rang up Mer, the department, the manager of the Merion and so, yeah, it's okay. It's compliant. Not even directly. You, you ask someone else to ask the manager of the Merion. Yeah. <laughs> um, we should be back uh, all things being equal, I suppose, on Sunday. We shall be. There is a couple of things. Uh, I, on Sunday, I did particularly want to talk about a new uh, study that's come out about mask wearing in India. Really large study site. Probably the largest, that, well, definitely the largest I've seen done. Um, I'm just going through it now. There's some interesting stuff in it, both, and both in promotion of wearing masks and in the limitations of wearing masks and where exactly they fall. So I think that'll be something to discuss on Sunday anyway. Yes, more mass stuff. Mask and Bangladesh. To close with Michael. Yes. On one thing, we, we were saying we, we've been wrong. On one thing we were absolutely right about. What's that? We were saying that the Zapone thing, for all that the government were like, oh, it's going to pass and it'll be fine and we'll just starve it of oxygen. We were making the point that they had done this immediately as we go into silly season, which means there's nothing else to write about or cover ensuring that this thing keeps going. And I think on that, we've been proven very accurate. It was the gift given, and it has been taken and enjoyed by the, the, the like a Christmas gift to children that they have played with and played with and played with. It is absolutely fantastic to, to observe, and it's going to keep going. At the speed they're screwing up, it'll take down the government <laughs> within two to four months. Mary Lou is on the way, lads. Get ready. For Catherine's opponent. <laughs> At least Wales has some nice scenery. Anyway, mind yourselves. All the best.